This podcast features discussions about finances and money, which are general in nature. For personal advice specific to your circumstances, see a licensed financial planner or relevant qualified professional. Hi folks, welcome back to another episode of Looking Under the Hood. I'm Scott Malcolm and we're unpacking the money stuff. Now today we're going on a bit of a different journey. We're talking about the client experience. Getting financial advice can often be a really daunting experience. We're taught that talking about money is a bit of a taboo subject at the best of times. And then we move through our our money life and sometimes that becomes a bit of a scorecard in how we rate ourselves, how we compare ourselves, are we successful, do we have enough of it? And then we roll into a financial advisor's office and we're there exposing all our good, bad, indifferent uh, of our financial life and financial self. So it is a big process. Today I'm joined by Keith Barrett, a financial services journalist and PR consultant from Reverb Media, and Scott Miller, who I like to say is a recovering financial planner uh, and now a fintech entrepreneur at Ascendium. We're unpacking the advice experience, but also talking about the legally required statement of advice, which advisors prepare and present to clients as part of that advice journey. Welcome along, Keith and Scott. Keith is the one with the accent just for those uh, playing along at home. But Keith, I'll start with you. What's one of your early happy money memories? I have two that are that are quite closely linked, and they both come back to to reward. I think so. When uh, in Ireland, you, doing making your first Holy Communion is a big, huge event in your life, and you get lots of money from relatives. And uh, I remember buying the sets of Lego. I can still picture them in my head today. The Lego sets that I bought with that communion money, having never had that amount of money to invest in an object. Um, but then there was a. This is a bit of a, a brag, but uh, when I was in in primary school, there was a spelling competition and I won it the five years I was in the school and you used to get a book voucher and I used it to buy famous five books and it became this running thing through my life that so and I'm at the point where just last night I was looking at buying the full 21 set of the famous five from for my six-year-old but that all started with being smart enough to win a spelling competition and then get the get the reward I love it I love it what were the lego sets you got uh, it was it was one Lego set. It was a massive white starship, and it broke into three parts. So you had the command module at the front, which became a rover with wheels on the ground, and you had a midsection, and then you had the kind of jet part at the back. But all three of them assembled into one massive contraption. I love Jeez, it. I loved that set. <laughs> oh, that's great. What about you, Scott? What's what's one of your early happy money memories? Well, mine's a bit different from Lego. Um, I only realized what I did when I got older and started learning, going into university and everything, what I actually did when I was five. So when I was five, as a kid, you're like, mom, dad, can I have this? And the common response is money doesn't grow on trees. So no, Mm -hmm. I thought to myself, I'll show you. So I'd saved up a dollar 20 back when I was like uh, five years old, I was like, okay, I'm going to go plant this and grow myself a money tree. So I went out of the backyard and I'm like, okay, well, if it doesn't grow, I don't want to lose all my money. So I'll put 20 cents in instead of a dollar. And then I, I come out, I keep looking at it for a couple of months. I'm like, damn it, where it's not growing. Okay. I'll just dig up my coin and I couldn't find my 20 cent coin. And I thought to myself, lucky I didn't put the dollar 20 in there. 
only when I got older, I realized that what I was doing is portfolio management and allocating my money in a diversified setting. 20% in high risky money tree, $1 in piggy bank in bedroom. So that was oh, my What a story. What a great, what a great memory and what a great story. And the stats suggest that only about 20% of Australians actually go and get financial advice. And look, I'm really passionate about trying to make advice more accessible for people of all income levels, but the compliance costs are really starting to to add up and uh, add to this process and it can become a, a big hurdle. Keith, I guess you've been around financial services for 20-something years. Um, we talked prior to the show about some of the experiences you had when you got financial advice yourself. How was that process for you? When I sat down with an advisor about about four years ago, uh, I would have considered myself uh, fairly knowledgeable around financial services. I had I had edited the Chartered Accountants magazine for a number of years. I had been the managing editor on Professional Planner, so I would have considered myself to at least having better than an average understanding of the financial services kind of market. But uh, but I found I found the onboarding process a, a real challenge. I found a lot of the questions I would a- that I was asked made me feel like I hadn't thought enough about my own life, and uh, I found it really confronting, particularly around insurance. You know, when we did the we did mm. a special meeting for two hours just on insurance, and I came out of that my head was spinning. I found it really difficult to try and answer the questions the advisor was asking me on the fly um, for two hours straight. Mm, our industry is so information driven at the best of times and that we are, oh, we've got to fact find, we've got to understand our client, we've got to get all this this information out of people. And if you're trying to wrangle that in, in one meeting, um, that can be quite overwhelming at the, the best of times. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, when you get thrown questions like, do you want to have university fees covered for your children? And my kids were four and one at the time. And then how many years of college do you want to cover them for? It just, it felt really, really unnecessary. And the further we went down through that process, the more passive I became because I, I became completely disengaged with it. Uh, and I think it's, it's you know, I'm, I've worked in communications my, my entire mm-hmm. life. I'm 25 years in the media and, uh, my experience in 10 years around the advice industry is that it's really great at, at talking about best practice and compliance and costs and everything. But but in 10 years, I've seen no emphasis at all in communicating to the customer or to the potential customer. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why the 20% or the 80% of the unadvised Australians, that number isn't really significantly changing. You'd also mentioned some stats that you had from um, Professional Planner magazine, I think, around um, just the client engagement and how people went and got advice, but then sort of didn't uh, get followed up or they felt like they were sort of left out in the uh, oasis of uh, of the world in regards to uh, the planning environment. That's a, a survey core data did. So it, it's a couple of years yeah. old. It's back in 2017. And it basically looked at licensees and and. Uh, tried to decide tried to discover what the percentage of follow-ups after a first consult was so how many how many times an advisor did or did not follow up with a potential client and on average 53% of of uh, potential clients that met an advisor never heard from the advisor again and then on the other side of that, when you look at what the what the, the potential customer's intention of going back to the advisor was, um, in the in the worst case, sixty percent of prospective clients said they had no intention to go to a second meeting. But in the best case, the best performing licensee, forty percent of people who met an advisor said they had no intention of following up. 
So there's if 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 twenty percent of Australians are advised, and they're the tw- they're the people that made it through the the the. the getting a phone call back from an advisor, then if just the callback rate was 100%, then that could potentially be 40% of Australians being advised. But that 20% hasn't moved, to my knowledge, in five years plus. It's it's a static number. And despite initiatives like Financial Planning Week, etc., if if that number isn't moving, then why aren't more Australians getting advice? And is it a cost issue? Is it a is it an understanding issue? I'm not sure. I'll, I'll bring Scott into the conversation what, what's, I guess, your view in uh, that client experience, like, again, from, from the planning process when you were in, in the advice space? How did you wrangle that or how did you come across that? Yeah, so when I was a planner, when I first started out, um, this was pre-Royal Commission. Um, I went through FOFA and, and bid, et cetera. I found that I was spending about 80% of my time with clients and engaging with them, building the relationship, developing strategy, and about 20% of my time on paperwork. Now, the paperwork that I worked on is what the clients actually saw, the statement yeah. of advice, is what was actually value-add to them. And then once you had FOFA, BID, Royal Commission, FASIA, what happened was the time inverted. So I was spending 80 to 90% of my time on paperwork that the client would never see, but that my licensee required me to do, which added no value, no benefit, and I don't recall a single client that's ever asked to see all the documentation. I correct that. I had one client who was a consultant at EY and he goes, well, I want to see all your notes, all your research. I said, okay, well, I'll just go get my admin to print it off. And I walked in with about 200 pages of research, fact, find, strategy, paper, file notes, and the SOA. And he looked at it and went, okay, never mind. So even though to see what I did, he didn't want to actually go through 200 pages, which is what I had to do to actually deliver superannuation and insurance advice. Mm. Yeah. So what I realized, I couldn't help clients anymore. I was, I was basically, I can only service 100 clients in this country as a planner with the current compliance framework. So that's what actually got me to transition out of planning because I'm like, okay, well, all the technology is only focused on a Band-Aid solution or one part of the process, but the pain point, which means I can't work with more clients, is A to B. Mm. So that's why we, why I set off and built Ascendium, which has actually got that time down to a couple hours compared to the FPA's reported 26 hours to deliver advice. Do you want to just give us a bit of background as to what Ascendium actually does? Yeah, of course. So Ascendium was built out of a passion to help planners provide more financial advice to more consumers. So what we wanted to do is get advice down to intraday. So being able to develop comprehensive advice the day you see a client and present it the next day. That's been our goal. So the co-founders and I, Sharon Lee and William Kim, we built this system. Now what the system does is it's meant to be used by planners with clients. Now, as a result of that, by engaging with the client in a live scenario within technology and then being able to build the compliance framework and legislation into the system, it means that every piece of advice that a financial planner produces within Ascendium will meet their licensee compliance rules and the ASIC frameworks. Therefore, if a planner is using Ascendium and you're getting advice from a planner with Ascendium, you know that it's coming tomorrow and you, you can rest assured you're covered.
when you are getting advice, I guess the the thing because again, people listening might uh, not have been to see a financial planner before, might might not have a total appreciation for some of these things. Um, Scott, I'll, I'll stay with you, but I guess what are what are some of those documents? So you, you mentioned a few of those. Like if we unpack some of those a little bit further. So again, there's file notes, there's strategy papers, there's statements of advice. I guess what what are those in in context if we're sort of explaining those to general public out there? Yeah, of course. So we really have four main documents or compliance requirements in the advice process. So first of all, you have the fact find. This basically will be a documentation of all the client's personal financial information, as well as they want to achieve and why, and what discussions you had around those. So that's basically forms the foundation of the advice you're going to provide. So this is something that clients engage with. The next you have is a strategy paper or a working paper or a bid paper or a research paper. This is basically a document that's that's on the planner's records to justify why they are recommending a particular piece of advice or why are they recommending a particular strategy and why are they recommending a product for that strategy. Every planner I know always focuses on strategy and product is, is literally the last thing they think of. A product is used to enable a strategy, but a strategy itself is actually where the value is. So true. The strategy document is usually what auditors or compliance teams review when they review a file. So it has to be good quality. The other one is file notes. So a lot of um, clients don't realize this, but after a meeting you have with a planner, they have to document every conversation, mannerism, how you were disposed emotionally, physically, how you presented in the meeting, what you conveyed in the meeting, how you received what they said back to you. These file notes of a one hour meeting will take one to two hours to actually complete. Now, anytime a planner emails, calls, texts, has a meeting with a client, there has to be another file note encompassing that conversation or engagement. They then have to do file notes when they call a super fund, investment fund, an insurance fund, whenever they do anything in relation to the process. So these file notes are what make up like 10 hours of the process. And it's just basically a record of what was conveyed and said. The last one is the statement of advice, which is a byproduct of everything that came before it. In this statement of advice, you you really have two approaches. You have what's classified as an IFA market planner and an aligned planner. So an SOA is very different for both those planners. An SOA for an IFA is usually much more simpler because it's designed to meet the ASIC framework and Corporations Act. And then you have a licensee SOA, which is basically looking at your AMPs, your IOOFs, where if you have a planner from there, an SOA for a superannuation advice may be 60 to 100 pages. And all it is is mainly legal disclosures, which they've put in to cover the company. But ultimately... A lot of people forget it all falls onto the planner. The relationship the planner has, the advice they provide, and it all comes back to them. So those are the four key documents, which is why they have to get those right. But the current process in the planning industry is all manual. So if you're wondering why advice takes 12 12 weeks, it's because they have to manually prepare these documentations because they haven't been provided the technology to enable it, which is what we do. So that that's part of the actual planning process and, and the four documents that you're really going to be addressing with. 
I guess it is a, a byproduct, as you say, of the of royal commissions of making sure that there is a framework for protection and and keeping people within the industry, making sure they're doing the right things. But the timeframes on advice is often a big frustration and a big uh, tension point. And I think it is that I guess that, that instant gratification world that we live in, people just want to have the information uh, straight out uh, at the end of the day. What do you think, um, again, either as a, a client experience perspective or even for people considering it, engaging with advice, what are some of the, the things that you think people should be looking for if they're, I don't know, think, feeling a bit overwhelmed about, right, want to go and see an advisor or not sure what, what questions to ask or, or where to go? Keith, have you got any insights as to what, what you'd uh, tell yourself four years on before you go and see an advisor, some of the things that you would uh, suggest? Um, I think a lot of what's just been talked about is, is, is really valid. You know, I think uh, my advisor experience a few years ago was with a large licensee. Um, so it was, it was a volume game for that advisor. He had a certain amount of clients that he needed to, to have to be sustainable as a business, etc. By the time my statement of advice came, I, I never opened it. I, all I wanted them to do was to be managing my, my helping me manage my money, looking after my super. I, I don't think I ever opened the statement of advice, to be honest. Yeah, well. Because it took six, I think it was six weeks by the time, by the time it, it materialized. And by that stage, I was so frustrated with the fact that I had all this motivation six weeks prior. And um, so, so I think, that, so I think that, that is an issue that, that I think overcoming that would be a, a massive benefit in keeping, pe- in keeping momentum. And I think that drop-off rate that may occur with, with potential clients in that six-week wind, window would evaporate. In terms, of, in terms of approaching advice, again, I'm not advised at the moment uh, and I'm in a better financial position than I was four years ago, so I probably should be advised. Uh, but I have, a, I have a reluctance to, to go down that road. I think if, if I do it again, I would probably look to find an advisor that I think suits. I, I think there's a greater range of, of advisors now compared to when you had, you know, the bank owned models where you had lots and lots of advisors all working in the same system. Whereas there are so many independent advisors, young advisors, people that have come through and viewed the turmoil in the industry today as a great benefit to them for leveling the landscape when they're in their late mid to late twenties and they're just getting started. And I think finding an advisor that perhaps aligns with your worldview a little bit would help so maybe paying attention to to the to the advisor's marketing or reading some collateral that they do i think finding an advisor that you relate to and can take you on the journey would be a great help um, and also educating yourself on what the onboarding process will be like and then you won't be blindsided with with questions mm. that are, are really challenging yeah, no, and I think that's a great tip there, Keith, in that I know as an advisor, I'm not going to be the, the cup of tea for everybody. And I've got a certain sort of values-based approach that I, I use with clients and some clients don't align with that. And so it is just about asking the questions, sitting with the um, advisor. Most advisors will give you at least sort of, um, 15 minutes, half an hour of their time uh, before you engage with them and uh, on, a, on a fee-based level and just allow yourself the time to ask some of those questions and, and go through those, that process. Scott, flipping over to you, what, what about yourself? Any any tips for, for new punters or those who are already uh, getting advice uh, around sort of what um, what you'd, you'd suggest as, a, again, recovering financial planner, but also as, as someone who's trying to shake up the industry a little bit and, uh, and make some efficiencies there in the background? Yeah, of course. I, I just want to go back to what Keith said, because that's um, in terms of the wait time to get his statement of advice, that's about standard in the industry. You're looking at between two to eight weeks. 
And what a lot of people don't realize is there's always a cost to that statement of advice ranging from 500 to 1500 to get it developed. So I guess what I want to highlight that what Ascendium is doing is removing that wait time because we can produce advice within statements of advice within 30 seconds. Now, Keith, if you didn't have to wait six weeks to get your statement of advice, would you have been more open and more fresh in mind to actually review that? Yes, absolutely. I think I think absolutely because because you would see the the fruits of that difficult conversation come to life the, that evening or the next day, and you could sit down and go through it and say, "Look, actually, in hindsight, I didn't answer that right. So I think we need to revisit this." Yeah. So if we look at cutting the elapsed time, and if you remove that cost as well, it can lower the cost of advice. And this is what is when it comes to clients seeking advice, cost is always first first point of mind, but after I've explained all the work that planners do in the back end, which they don't see, that's why the cost is actually so high. But if we can embrace technology or you go to a planner that does embrace technology like Scott or other businesses, that means the time to deliver advice is shorter, it's more robust and it's more efficient and, and can align with what you need. And I really like, I really have a passion in actually getting more advice to more clients because you said there's 20% of clients that actually seek advice now, one thing a lot of people don't notice is the CPA Australia released a report that said if 100% of Australians that are eligible got advice, the economy would be better off by $630 billion a year. Yeah, wow. That would be reduction on Centrelink, that would be um, private health, it would be insurance, there would be more cash flow in people's pockets. There's an enormous opportunity for the benefits of advice. So that right there, $630 billion a year, is the value of getting advice with a planner. So, yeah, like I remember one story. Um, so how Afterpay reached more clients. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned this before to you, Scott. Right. What they did was they actually sent emails to consumers who registered and wanted Afterpay and said, if you want the stores that you regularly shop at to have Afterpay, send this to their contact us. And then businesses yep. were speaking to Afterpay actually saying, we're getting all this demand and like, well, it seems your clients want it. So right now, consumers want a cost-effective delivery of advice that doesn't take 12 weeks. Mm. If we work together with clients and planners and technology, that's how we can solve that problem. I think so. And I'm excited about the future of, of advice because I think as we leverage technology more, as we take on board these changes, I mean, look, this industry has been changing. I've, I started in this industry in 2001 and we have had consistent change regulation-wise going on in the background. And I think that is one of the, the great uh, opportunities that exists in the market. Now, um, we do like to keep these episodes short and sweet. So I think we've been uh, covering off on a few things. There might be a bit of technical stuff in there for people to engage with today, but um, hopefully there's some great information there for people who are considering advice or people who have got advice in the past and just getting a bit more of an understanding of, of what they've received. So look, thanks so much for joining me, Keith and Scott. I'll put your contact details in our show notes as well. But yeah, thank you very much for coming along. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Scott. My pleasure. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, we have talked a bit about advice documents and the advice process today. Some of that still might feel a little bit overwhelming, but look, I would say to everybody, 
it's really about if you are seeking out professional advice, check out the Money Smart website, moneysmart.gov.au. There's some great resources on there about what to look for in finding a financial advisor. I think the things we've talked about today about aligning it to your values, aligning it to what you're trying to achieve as well. Make sure that you're getting involved with someone who does Uh, the sort of advice that you're looking for and that you know you're going to be able to have open, honest conversations with about the money stuff. Good luck on the journey and thanks for listening. Remember, if you like the show, please share it. uh, Rate us on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you soon. Listener.